This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Monday, October 16th. On the podcast today, officials in Israel are warning of a long war as a ground invasion of Gaza looms. We'll speak to an Ottawa woman who has lost dozens of family members there since the start of the war and ask Israel's ambassador to Canada about efforts to open up a humanitarian corridor. Plus, we'll hear from the power panel on Canada's response to this war. All right, let's begin in Israel with an update from our reporter on the ground there. The CBC's Chris Brown joins us now from Jerusalem. So, Chris, is there an update on the status of the hostages in Gaza? Let's start there. Well, we're tracking a fairly significant development tonight, David. We've been waiting for some kind of proof of life from some of these people who were taken back to Gaza by Hamas. The number now stands at 199. That's risen from what it was earlier today as names have been crossed off one list and added to another. But this is very significant. Hamas has released a hostage video, the very first one, and the young woman who's honored, her name is Mia Shem. Now, uh, we're not going to play you the video, but we will show you uh, a screen grab from it, and I'm going to read the translation of what she said into the camera. Uh, You can see just before the video begins that she has been wounded. Uh, She uh, can't tell what kind of wound it is, but her arm was being bandaged by someone uh, in a white coat. And then it cuts to her saying, I'm Mia Shem, I'm 21 years old from Shoham. That's a, a city not too far from Tel Aviv. I'm currently in Gaza. I returned on Saturday early morning from a party in the Sterot area. I injured my hand very badly. They took me to Gaza. They operated on my hand for three hours. They take care of me. They give me medicine. Everything is fine. I just ask you to bring me back home soon, as as soon as possible, to my family, to my parents, to my brothers. Please get us out of here as soon as possible. Thank you. So, uh, obviously awful for the parents to see it we've uh, we know that her mom has put out some uh, social media pleas for her to be returned um, this is a psychological warfare at its worst uh, and the message obviously from Hamas here David is uh, think about the hostages don't think about your offensive um, Hamas has about 6,000 of its own prisoners in Israeli jails and in a separate statement before all this came out tonight they had suggested that that is what they are after with these hostages some kind of um, a swap this is a very politically explosive story for Israel's government these um, the families of some of these hostages have been making an impact they've started protests even against Benjamin Netanyahu calling on him to uh, resign so um, obviously the Israeli government would have been expecting this uh, but surely it cannot be uh, cannot be an easy thing okay Chris so some ur- urgent news there on the hostage situation there's also the humanitarian situation inside Gaza what do we know about the status of the Rafah border crossing into Egypt didn't open today. Uh, there were a lot of hopes that it would. Why didn't it open? Uh, Egypt is blaming Israel, saying from their point of view, the border is actually uh, open, but it's just not operational. They have also accused Israel of actually dropping bombs right near the uh, right near the border crossing. Um, the uh, UN has a mission there. Uh, they've been very, very critical, speaking out, saying there's no supplies for people in Gaza. There's no power. Food is very scarce. Uh, UNRWA, uh, as I say, the agency there says in some shelters, 
there are hundreds of people using a single toilet. It gives you some idea of just how bad the sanitation system is there. And yet there are hundreds of trucks waiting to go in. Um, Egypt obviously is very concerned. They do not want militants from Hamas exiting, going into the Sinai, nor do they want a large displacement of people from Gaza going into uh, the Sinai. So they are obviously um, have, have their own demands of this as well. And uh, it's not been something that anyone, including the U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, who has been in the region, um, has been able to resolve. Okay, so Chris, while diplomacy continues on that front, there is also the military situation along Gaza's northern border. What's the, situa- what's the latest there? Um, the situation is that there's been an increasing buildup of Israeli armor, of Israeli troops. All along that border, we've seen in the last 72 hours uh, Hezbollah taking shots at Israeli positions on one side, Israel returning positions, uh, turning, returning fire on another. Uh, tonight, the Jerusalem Post is quoting some military experts as saying this is the reason for a delay in going into Gaza is that uh, Israel is concerned about this northern border or was concerned about this northern border, about the prospects of Hezbollah moving, making some kind of a move. And so they needed to shore that up by sending troops from the south to the north. The paper suggesting that um, those, uh, those preparations are now in place. Uh, Anthony Blinken, as I mentioned, is here today. There's also talk that Joe Biden, the U.S. president, is going to come later in the week, possibly on Wednesday, uh, and also speculation that maybe it won't be until after these major visits are done that uh, Israel uh, is going to make a move with its ground offensive uh, against Hamas. Okay, Chris, uh, thank you very much, as always. That's the CBC's Chris Brown in Jerusalem. Well, here in Ottawa, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is calling for an unimpeded humanitarian access and a humanitarian corridor for Gaza. The U.S. is also seeking to get humanitarian aid into Gaza. Ido Moed is Israel's ambassador to Canada. He joins me now in the studio. Ambassador, it's good to speak with you again. Thank you for having me, David. You were listening there as you spoke to Chris. He laid out a lot of issues uh, to walk through. But let's start with these calls for a humanitarian corridor. I realize Israel is only one party to these conversations, but what is the likelihood of establishing some sort of a humanitarian corridor for the people stuck in Gaza? So Israel has a special military unit that is involved with making sure that there is coordination with all those in the gr- on the ground within the Gaza Strip, and I mean the international organizations and also the international community, because we understand, of course, the importance and the need for these corridors to exist. We also try to anticipate in advance uh, that there may be some shootings, and so, so Israel also prepared shelters for the population in case that there is any kind of movement, and there are, there are tens of them around Gaza. Uh, right now, we are fighting a war, and we are fighting a war against a terrorist organization, not against the population. So we try to do whatever we can. And we drop leaflets and we inform them directly and we make sure that they know which way to go in order for them to get out of harm's way. While Hamas is pressing them back into harm's way. So they are blocking the roads, they are calling them, they are taking, we have some footage of uh, Hamas taking the the car uh, uh, keys from drivers, not allowing them to move further south. This This is a war that we are fighting against a terrorist organization and that's a battle also for the Palestinians within the Gaza Strip to survive. We understand that. 
we do whatever we can to allow for these humanitarian corridors, for the crossing from, the, uh, from Egypt to be available and open once it's possible. We've tried to create this opening in the past, a few, two days ago. Hamas blocked that. So we are trying to do it. It's very complicated. That's the reality. You say Hamas blocked it. And look, I, I appreciate the, the near impossibility of any kind of negotiations involving a group that's designated as a terrorist organization. But Egypt has a different version of that, saying that it's demands from Israel that are holding things up. I mean, where are things between Israel and Egypt to at least sort out the issues between the, those two countries in terms of safe passage at the Rafah crossing? So. We have to understand that when we make, when the crossing is opened, that there is a lot of issues involved there. You want to make sure that indeed whatever aid is coming in is indeed aid. We've right. seen among the terrorists here uh, rice sacks that were filled with munitions. So it may appear as if it's food, but inside you have to check each and every parcel. Uh, so you want to make sure that militants and uh, terrorists are not leaving the Gaza Strip, escaping the, uh, the Gaza Strip, uh, especially the leadership, which you might well expect them to do. So this is a very complicated, complex situation. We want to make sure that we are on top of it. We are trying, we are working very hard to do it. We understand the need and we are doing everything we can to create that possibility. But we, we, sorry, go ahead. No, we are, we, the bottom line is we are at war and we need to win this war and we need to win it fast and we need to win it decisively. And I think this is extremely important to understand. Uh, the next day after 9-11, I'm sure nobody spoke about ceasefire because this is what we are facing right now. All this horrendous footage that uh, we've, uh, we are uncovering right now and the terrorist attacks that took place in those different villages and the horrendous acts of, of barbarism are horrendous because they change the whole perspective of what we are dealing with. And that's the reason why we cannot stop. This is not just a simple terrorist attack of killing one or two people. It's 1,400 people, 5,000 people in total of injured and so on. And we don't have the final number of, right. of uh, hostages yet because we are still trying to find out forensically who is alive and who is, who is this uh, missing. The, the, the challenge in this, though, is that there is a population of more than 2 million people in Gaza. As you're well aware, not all of them, obviously, are Hamas members or even Hamas supporters. And they are stuck there, including thousands of foreign nationals, Canadian citizens, American citizens. Secretary of State Blinken from the U.S. had suggested that Egypt is prepared to facilitate at least the departure of foreign nationals from Gaza. Uh, what can you tell us about where that potentially is? Well, as I said earlier, we are working hard mm -hmm. to create this kind of a passage. Um, what concerns me right now is what is the humanitarian situation of the hostages. Right. Nobody is really taking care of that. Nobody has access to them, not the Red Cross, nobody. Nobody really knows. And when that happens and there are hundreds of Israelis held in uh, underground in the Gaza Strip and who knows what happens and we just witnessed something that I don't I cannot confirm but this is really mind-boggling that this is what we are dealing with so of course we want to make sure that people are safe those who those who are not involved are safe but it will take us time and we will need to resolve a lot of issues before that can happen. I was, my next question was going to be about the state of the hostages because we saw the release of this video of a claiming to be 21-year-old Mia Shem who, who was taken in the initial tax on October 7th. What do you know about the status of the hostages and efforts underway to potentially free them or, or, or get them exchanged in some way? Is there anything you can share on that front? 
That's the whole point. This is the, this is the target of the Hamas, to create this kind of uh, 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 open question that will make this kind of a concern in Israel, create this protest against the Prime Minister, another pressure not to go into uh, Gaza, not to get rid of Hamas, because they are holding these people hostage. We don't know anything about them at the moment. We are gathering a lot of information. But as I told you, we are also in investigating the remains of human remains that we found in different locations to try and understand if there are people. Uh, these people have uh, been abducted or are they dead or whatever. And this is a very, very uh, serious situation because under these conditions, when you expect Israeli government to look at uh, issues that are not pertaining to the direct elimination of the Hamas, you have to understand that that is not the priority of Israeli government at the moment. We know and we heed and we live by international law. We understand exactly what it means. I don't think there is any military that understands the implications of international law and the law of armed conflict as the Israeli military. We are very well aware of it. We are very transparent in that. But we also have to understand that we have to keep the lives of Israelis safe. Well, there has been a lot of criticism, though, uh, of the bombardment uh, of Gaza. You've heard this from the United Nations, from you know aid groups, uh, saying that this is effect collective punishment on the civilian population. We spoke to an Ottawa woman earlier that's going to play later in the show. She's lost 35 family members inside Gaza, uh, or 45 maybe, uh, since this started. I, I mean, what do you say to people who are losing loved ones, Canadians, Americans, people from all over the world who are losing loved ones because of the response of the uh, Israeli military to, and, and let me be very clear, to the provocation and the assault, the, the murders of Hamas. What do you say to people who are now seeing their family members caught up in all of this? I would say, first of all, it's horrendous. It's absolutely horrendous to lose families, whole families, and all of that. We, we know that. We understand that. We try to do whatever we can to avoid that. So therefore, we inform the population, we warn the population, we warn them minutes before attack takes place. But when Hamas holds them hostage and does not allow for them to move and keeps them there as human shields, it means that Hamas doesn't care at all about Palestinian lives. They care only about killing Israelis. And let me say one more thing about this. When Hamas was planning this attack for months or who knows how long, they never even saved one drop of water, one ounce of fuel, one sack of rice or food for the population, even though they knew that whatever happens, Israel will react immediately and that will come in scarcity. So when we're talking about this, I think this that's why I said earlier, the Palestinians are hostages, right. they are suffering from their own uh, Hamas organization, which took over the Hamas and did not even allow them to uh, elect a government or to choose anything else than their their uh, uh, rule, their rule of terror. You, you mentioned hostages and human shields as, as tactics by Hamas to deter the IDF from going in. It doesn't seem to me as if it will deter them ultimately because of your stated goal to go in there and eliminate Hamas and the warnings that have been issued. What is the status? Is, is it being held up? Uh, to allow for the humanitarian talks because of concerns of what Hezbollah may do at your northern border from out of Lebanon? What is the status of the military operation? Well, Israel is one country that is surrounded by some enemies and some friendly countries. In this current situation, the threats that are uh, coming from the north and from the south are serious, and they are backed by a country that is far out in the region, Iran. It's a very serious situation, and the Israeli government is taking the most responsible steps 
in the direction of, first of all, eliminating Hamas, and second, making sure that this conflict doesn't get uh, out of control and doesn't spin into more fronts. We are acting very responsibly. We are working together with the international community. As you see, uh, Secretary Blinken, Minister Jolie just visited Israel and held talks with her counterpart. And we are making sure that whatever we do also takes into, the into account other considerations. However, given the fact that Hamas is such a deadly organization, we, ha we are um, um, determined to eliminate this threat and to make sure that it doesn't hurt us again. You, you say eliminate Hamas. They're not all in Gaza. This is a strategic challenge, right, in that the, one of the leaders maybe the, is in Qatar. Others are believed to be in other countries. So even if you are, have a successful military operation inside Gaza, can you truly eliminate Hamas if the people who are in charge aren't there? We make sure that all those who are responsible for these attacks and for these atrocities will pay. Ambassador, thank you so much for coming in today. We appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. That's Ido Moed, Israel's ambassador to Canada. Well, the Canadian embassy is confirming the identity of a Canadian killed by Hamas attackers on October 7th. 21-year-old Netta Epstein is seen here, pictured with his fiancée. His family says he died by jumping on a grenade in order to shield his fiancée, who survived. This brings the total of known Canadians killed to five. The four other Canadians that have been confirmed dead are Alexandre Luc, Adi Vital Kaplun, Ben Mizrahi, and Shur Georgie. Three Canadians are still missing. The United Nations Agency supporting Palestinian refugees estimates that one million people in Gaza have been displaced since last week. Aid groups warned today that there are only 24 hours worth of water, electricity and fuel left in Gaza before a quote, real catastrophe sets in. It's reported that more than 2,000 Palestinians have been killed, including more than 600 children. While this is happening, an Ottawa woman and her family have been watching the burial of her loved ones in Gaza from afar. And we have some of this video footage, and I'd like to warn you, it contains images you may find disturbing. This woman, our next guest, has lost dozens of her family members in the past few days, and her family's been watching the burials through live streams on social media. Hala Alsher joins me now in studio. Hala, thanks for coming in. No, thank you for having me. We've all seen the top-level numbers and seen the images of the destruction in Gaza, but this has taken a, a very personal toll for you and your family. Yeah. What do you want people to know about that impact? I want people to understand that Palestinians are human beings, just like everybody else. I think there was a lot of circulation on the media referring to us as human animals, but that's not really the case. Um, these are people... These are our family. Um, on Friday, I did an interview where I had lost 10 of my relatives. Today, I'm coming on CBC with that number increasing to 35 from both sides between my mom and my dad. Um, it's been really emotional. Um, I think the Palestinian community in Ottawa is feeling very heavy-hearted, a lot of guilt, um, feeling ashamed for not being able to do more than what we're able to do here, going to protest, vocalizing our, our anger, vocalizing our sadness. Um, I, I don't even know what to say. It's really, really heavy on our community. Th yeah. 35 family members yeah. since, the, since the bombardment started uh, a, roughly a week ago. Yeah, 35. 
10 of them um, we know our children. Um, in my last interview, I referenced Yahya. Today, I really want to talk about Talin. She was uh, two years old, very, very beautiful little girl that we had to bury. Um, our family has been watching the burials live. We are watching the news to figure out who the family members that we lost are. Um, yesterday, there was a, a hit on uh, one of my dad's, uh, a family from my dad's side, and the amount of text messages I got from my friends saying, is your family okay? We heard your last name on TV. Is your family okay? Is it your uncle? Who is it? Who is it? And we're all just watching Al Jazeera Live going like, okay, we're looking for bodies. We're looking for something to identify. Like, who is it? We, we don't know. We're, we're really struggling. The Palestinian community is really struggling with this. Um, you've provided us some pictures of the family members. Yeah. <clears throat> There's eight. That's 25%. The little girl you mentioned, two years old? How did she die? Do you know? They were given no warning. They were given no text message, no phone call, no nothing. An airstrike. The whole building fell on top of their head. We're watching videos of children being pulled out of the rubble, uh, out of the, the mm -hmm. everything that's falling um, on top of them. We're watching videos of parents burying their babies. Um, as a woman, I can't even imagine how hard that must be on mothers. Um, I'm at a loss of words. Where's the international community? You, you, Where are they? You say you've watched the, the burials live. This is on Instagram. You have family members who are streaming things on Instagram. How, how are you, you seeing this? You've sent us some video that we're going to show. Um, how are you able to see this? It's not fair that they're living it and we get to close our phones. I think the guilt is really heavy. And when I open my phone all day, I wake up at 2 a.m. I'm checking my phone. Is there any news from anyone back home? Um, and we're, we're, we want to know, we want to make sure everybody's okay. But when you're looking at the death toll get higher and higher every single day, and you feel like there's nothing that you can do, I don't, I don't know what to say. 35 family members um, dead as we speak. How many more family do you have in Gaza? Have they been able to get to the south? Have they been able to get to the area that is supposedly safe? So nothing in Gaza is safe right now. Gaza, um, on the media, you know it's an open-air prison. There is no such thing as safe in Gaza. It's a target. It's a, it has a big target on it. They are trying to ethnically cleanse um, the land. Um, so right now, what's happening is, so I actually am born in Gaza. Mm -hmm. I was born in Rafah, so in southern uh, Gaza. Um, my dad's family is there. We had a lot of people in Khan Yunis. My uncle, um, he was in Gaza City. They asked everybody to leave. Um, then the media knows that that was a trap. People were being killed on the road as they were leaving. So um, there's no such thing as safe, even in the South. There's no such thing as safe. My uncle has been, my, my dad's youngest brother actually called him a few days ago, and he was basically saying that he wants to say goodbye. He's like, we, we might not make it out this time. Yeah. And we, and we have to share to the world why we deserve to live. We have to ask the world to stand with us and to support us and to pray for Palestine. And the world is just watching a genocide happen and there's nothing that we can do. Everybody's just turning a blind eye to it. There, there are calls uh, and, and attempted negotiations for a humanitarian corridor, um, but that's, it's been a struggle. 
right? I think it's too late for that. I think when our elected officials, I saw the, the, the tweet by Justin Trudeau, I think that that should have been something that was said days ago. When you're looking at a death toll of over 8,000 people, I think that was the most recent that I've seen, or at least 8,000 injured. Yeah. When you're looking at very high death tolls, I think that's like 8,000 lives too late. People are living with um, wounds that might last them a lifetime. This isn't something that should have happened since day one. This, I, I can't, no matter what, the justification, everybody says this is a war with Gaza. This is a war on Gaza, in my opinion, and this isn't a war with a specific mm. entity. This is a war on the civilians of Gaza because they have been paying the cost with their lives, with their mental health, with the trauma that they're going to be enduring, with their hospitals, with their schools, with everything. Yeah, I, 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 I think... I, I, I'm not correcting the record to undermine your point. I, th I think the death toll is somewhere around 3,000 inside Gaza, but with more than 10,000 wounded. Yeah. And that is in no way undermining the point you are making there. Those are still catastrophically yeah. high numbers when you consider the amount of children and the civilian population there. But you have a lot of families still there. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I, I don't know if any of them are Canadian citizens or have citizenship for another country where these talks to maybe open the Rafa gate to get foreign nationals out if they can get out through there. I, I mean, what is your sense of what's in store for your family that's still there? We don't know. So this, this weekend, um, me and my parents, a lot of Palestinian families in Ottawa have just been consistently attending um, not funerals, but in Arabic we call it Aza, where we go and give our condolences to the families of those who lost loved ones. So we have gone to um, to this weekend. Um, my family wants to host one, but in our head we're just like, we don't even know what's going to happen. Do we just hold off or are we supposed to have one every week? We don't know. Um, in regards to um, the having uh, foreign citizenship, um, my uncle is still stuck there. He's a Canadian-Palestinian. Today they said that they were supposed to op open the Rafah border. Yeah, um, they said that they're going to have a five-hour uh, ceasefire, um, which didn't happen, and he's still there. So we, we have a family uh, group chat with his kids, and we've been asking them for updates and everything, and there's still no news. This has consumed your life. I mean, it's overwhelming. It's every single second of our life, and we are here in the comfort of our own homes, behind screens watching this. So I feel guilty even saying that this has been heavy on us because they can't even yeah. imagine what it's been on them. Hala, uh, I don't know what to say, except I'm very sorry, and thank you for mm. sharing your story with us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you guys also hearing our side of the story. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, we spoke with Hala again since our interview earlier today, and she says the number of family members she has lost is actually higher than 35. It's 45 people from her family who have been killed. As fighting continues in the Middle East, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is making a call for respect and care in this country. Trudeau also gave an update on the government's efforts to get Canadians out of the region, get humanitarian aid in, and ensure hostages are released. Here's the CBC's Catherine Cullen. There are so many people in Canada who are afraid of the escalating tension here at home. The crisis half a world away is hitting here, says the Prime Minister, citing rising anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. This is a time to reach out, to support one another. This was the first time politicians gathered in the House of Commons since Hamas's brutal attack over a week ago. 
All parties emphasize the need for a humanitarian corridor to deliver supplies to those suffering in Gaza. It is imperative that this happen. The Prime Minister noted the first bus of Canadians was able to get out of the West Bank and said they are working incessantly to try to get Canadians out of Gaza. He called for international law to be upheld and for Hamas to release its hostages, saying three Canadians may be among them. But let me also be extremely clear that Hamas does not represent the Palestinian people nor their legitimate aspirations. They do not speak for Muslim or Arab communities. The Conservatives hammered that message. Hamas is a sadistic, criminal, terrorist death cult, and it must be defeated. There was no negotiating with bin Laden, and there can be no negotiating with Hamas. Pierre Polyev called for a review to ensure no aid goes to Hamas, something the government insists it is already ensuring. The NDP are pushing for a different course. Israelis and Palestinians have the right to live in peace. Why won't this government stand up for international law and call for a ceasefire? A call the government is not embracing. Our government is very clear that we support the state of Israel and we recognize Israel's right to defend itself within international law. The Prime Minister called on Canadians to hold on to their core values, including freedom of speech and respect for one another. Catherine Cullen, CBC News, Ottawa. All right, the House of Commons will hold a take-note debate on this conflict later next hour as we'll get a more insight into the political response uh, from Canada to this conflict in the Middle East. We're going to talk about all of this now uh, with the Power Panel, who are back after a week's absence. Brad Levine is with Council Public Affairs. He joins us from Toronto. And here with me in Ottawa, political consultant Vandana Cotter, Lisa Raitt, a former Conservative Cabinet Minister, now Vice Chair of Global Investment Banking, uh, CIBC Capital Markets, and Rob Russo. He is the former CBC Parliamentary Bureau Chief. Um, hello, gang. Uh, thank you for joining us. These are, are dark days and, and dark topics. Vandana, um, you heard some what the Prime Minister and others spelled out there. I mean, what do you make uh, of how this is playing out uh, politically here in Canada? We've seen the protests and the counter-protests, and today appeals for calm and care. Well, I think that's the best way to go about it. Um, what we need is people and political leaders, um, civil leaders, as well as you know people from different community organizations working together to call for calm. Um, you know, you've seen some language being thrown around, and we have to make sure that we're fighting against hate, uh, hate against anti-Semitism, hate against Islamophobia, but also you know helping people through the the trauma that they're going through. You know, I saw your interviews earlier today, but people watching this passions are high. Mm-hmm. So how do we work together to shel- to solve for that? But also, there's a lot of people handling intergenerational trauma, and we had to have supports for that to make sure that we're addressing those as well. Lisa, how do you think politicians should tread as we navigate through this? I think we should tread with an eye towards what our partners are doing around the world. This is a really complex, difficult situation, and I completely take what you're saying about looking after our folks, and we have to do that. But we have to keep a really clear eye on what the U.S. is doing, what the U.K. is doing, what Australia is doing, because we can only follow. We're not going to lead in this kind of thing. And this could go down a path, David, that none of us like. And we've just got to make sure we're in step with the right guys. Brad, uh, uh, your quick take on uh, from the NDP perspective on where things stand. Yeah, I think I think that the voices within the House of Commons and the take note debate uh, later 
um, should exemplify the range of uh, voices within within this country. Uh, the, the notion of humanitarian aid is going to take more than $10 million that has already been uh, been uh, allocated by, by Trudeau. But it's, it's, I think it's important that we make sure that uh, this country speaks with one voice and ultimately looking for uh, peace and security for all uh, in the region. Rob, what's your high-level takeaway from where we are? I thought today was actually a good day for Canadian politics and a good day for the House of Commons, a, r a rare good day. Uh, everybody, everybody seemed to take what was happening seriously, uh, and they outlined what they thought their priorities should be for Canada. It was good to hear the Prime Minister say he wanted those hostages who are being held now, Canadian hostages released, all hostages uh, released as well. Um, uh, I think that the government has priorities, and he, and he laid them out neatly. And the first thing is to, is to try and get those people who are being held by Hamas released. We have a whole bunch of uh, Canadians who are in the region as well. He's going to focus uh, on getting those people out. That's his next priority as well. And, and then, as Lisa said, work with our allies, because there's not a lot we can do. We're, we're not going to spearhead this. But there, we do have some moral suasion. We can call on uh, people uh, who we, we can call, call on uh, Palestinian Authority to use whatever uh, suasion they have. We have a relationship with them. Use that. Um, but he laid out the priorities, and the immediate one, uh, is to try and get those people who are being held hostage released. The sad truth is, though, that we've learned from history that when Hamas holds somebody that they kidnap, it, take, it can take years. Uh, a soldier named uh, Gilad Shalit was held for five years, from 2011 to 2016, and only released after hundreds of Palestinian prisoners were released. And, right. and one of the heads of, of uh, Hamas in Doha said today that they have enough hostages, they believe, to free all of the Palestinians in Israeli jails. So we know this is going to be a long, laborious, complex process. You know, Vandana, Rob points out that past crises have gone on for a long time. Um, Israel's marshalling for a ground invasion of Gaza. So, like, I don't know how much time there actually is, right, to resolve this. And, and meanwhile, we're seeing protests in the early days of this where people were people in Canada have refused to condemn what Hamas did saying it's a legitimate act of resistance others are protesting for a Palestinian homeland and the Jewish community is rightfully outraged and afraid after what has happened I mean there's the geopolitical conflict but then there's this societal tension that that's that's bubbling over here I mean what can politicians do on that one they have to show unity. They have to work. This is not something to just to keep. I think while their eyes are on the international community, as they should be, their eyes have to be here domestically, talking to community leaders, talking to the community, and making sure they're the ones bringing people together. Um, they need to make sure that each side feels heard, um, not standing up for any hate, but legitimate, you know, protests, legitimate concerns about what's happening, you know, you can hear it, you can hear that. And I think people want to know that they have a voice here, that they're being listened to, and that perspectives are being understood. That's the hard part that the Canadian government has to, like, focus on. But their role is to set an example of how people can be brought together. And I think they need to lead that, and they have to lead that not just by themselves, but with... Mm civil leaders, and they have a diverse caucus on both sides, they can use those caucus members to help bridge those relationships because not just today, but I'm thinking about tomorrow, 10 years from now, we will have to build a lot of bridges here and a lot of trust and, and help people like survive the trauma that they're feeling. So the best way to do this is not just thinking about it today and not just thinking about it through the political lens, but the humanitarian one. Right. And how does that look like not even today, but 10 years from now too? But You know, Lisa, the political lens is inescapable, mm -hmm. uh, right? Um, and the, the parties, uh, by my read, 
strongly behind Israel, obviously, right now. I know the New Democrats have called for a ceasefire, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're anti-Israel on this, though I don't think a ceasefire is in the cards. Can anything shake that if, for example, there is no humanitarian corridor? If there's no ability to get the foreign nationals out uh, through the, the Rafah crossing yeah. into Egypt, uh, how, how is there a fragility to that, or do you think it's rock solid? I think there's always a fragility. Look, this is going to be an exercise in dismantling Hamas terrorist infrastructure in Gaza. It is not going to be pretty. It is not going to be easy. But they are going to do it. And I and I would I, I you know I heard other people talk about this. If you were juxtapose this to happening in the United States, you can't tell me that the Americans would not cross over a border to go sure. in and make sure that all of that terrorist infrastructure was taken out. That's what Israel's going to do. And I think it's going to be tough for some people to watch. And we'll see where people stand on it at the end of the day. I know where I stand. I'm very clear where I stand on all of this. And I, I totally defend uh, Israel's right to make sure that this doesn't happen to them again. Brad, Brad, we saw Heather McPherson and the New Democrats, they're, they're calling for a ceasefire. Uh, frustrated with the Prime Minister that he isn't also calling for one. I, I saw a White House briefing last week where they called the notion of a ceasefire disgusting, is, is what the press secretary described it as. I mean, is it, what are, it, it doesn't seem like a viable option at this point, so should Canada even call for one, or should it continue insisting on a humanitarian corridor and, and release some foreign nationals? Well, I, I think what Heather McPherson and the New Democrats are attempting to point out here is that the, the retaliation by Israel uh, is, is likely going to have a uh, tremendous uh, effect on civilians, uh, on Palestinian civilians. And uh, if the retaliation is uh, what we're expecting, there will be many civilians uh, slaughtered in the coming uh, days and weeks. That is, if, if what we're expecting uh, does transpire. Uh, it, it is important to point out here that there are many uh, Palestinians uh, who did not uh, organize the raid, uh, mm -hmm. the terrorist raid. They do not support uh, Hamas's actions. Yet they are, uh, you know, sitting in Gaza now, uh, knowing full well that they are likely to die in the coming uh, days, or very likely. It is a very dense uh, region. Uh, people are on top of each other, and we've already seen uh, what the initial Israeli response has been. And so, you know, giving voice to, to those, and this is not to suggest that, that what Hamas did is, is at all inexcusable, nor does Israel not have the right to defend itself. Uh, the question is, will international law apply uh, or not? And that's, I think, uh, an important uh, component of this, uh, of this debate. Rob, um, it, it does seem pretty clear that a ground invasion of Gaza is going to happen and urban warfare against a designated terrorist group that's entrenched and booby-trapped and uh, done all the things that you can do to make an urban incursion as deadly as possible um, is going to lead to grim images and grim news. How do you think, what, what's the potential of that to, to change how people are viewing this conflict? I, 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 don't, I don't know that there is any way that uh, impact of those images can be avoided. There, there are things that, that Palestinians themselves, Palestinian leaders who are not um, aligned with Hamas, or even some Hamas leaders who might think that their leaders have gone too far with this, that they can do. They can call for a release of the hostages. They can call for... Uh, a return to uh, a peace with Israel. They can call for the creation, uh, the way the United Nations called for the creation uh, 80 years ago, uh, of, of two states, one Jewish, one Arab, to live in peace in the same area. Um, you know, I, I, 
these that are dark, won't change these are, what's going to happen next, though. Would you, I, I you, mean, know, I, you know, I, 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 these are dark times, but yeah. I, I am an optimist. Sure. Um, in, 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 19, in 1973, we had the Yom Kippur War. Yeah. That did eventually lead to the, the realization from Anwar Sadat and Menachem Bacon that this state of war couldn't exist in perpetuity. And they came to the, the Camp David uh, uh, Accords. There, there, uh, out of these terrible times, sometimes peace can emerge. Uh, and and I, I, I live in hope that at some point the Palestinians will see that they have to live side by side with their Israeli neighbors, that they're not going away, and that it would be in their interest if there were two states, one Jewish, one Arab, just the way the United Nations hoped in 1948. But, you know, I spoke with Yossi Balin last week, a former Israeli justice minister, and he was part of the Oslo Accords. He was part of the Geneva, all of the peace process throughout the way. He was an advocate for a two-state solution and a peace. And he said to me, I want peace, but I don't want to skip this next step. They have you, to take care of Hamas. You have to clean up the neighborhood sometimes. When you have yeah. thugs in the neighborhood, the neighborhood needs to be cleaned up. And I think Israel has come to that conclusion that the neighborhood needs to be cleaned up. Quick final thoughts, Vanda. What are you watching for next? Um, I'm watching for how political leaders lead here. It's war. It's going to be messy. It's going to be bloody. There are no, you know, you can, it's not about taking a side for me. It's about focusing on people and people are dying and lots of my family came and escaped civil war my in-laws the same thing um there's a long process ahead and i hope politicians work and state actors work together and i hope they do bring what rob talked about in that piece long-lasting peace i think both the palestinian people and the israeli people deserve that and i hope to see that in the future lisa Really worried about the bigger geopolitical issues. Yeah. Worried about Iran. Worried about the U.S. Worried about China. Oh, I'm just worried. I, this this is a tinderbox, and it could go off on, on something that you, the least expectation. So I think it's great that the U.S. is over there. I think it's great that our officials are over there. The more people we have on the ground there, the better. Um, but like, it is not a safe place in the world at the moment. No, I, I mean with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, tensions in, in the Indo-Pacific, and, and now this, Brad, um, what, what are your final thoughts on this? Yeah, no, there's, there's, there's enough to be worried about tonight. Uh, there's <laughs> lot, lots, of, lots of things to keep us uh, preoccupied. And it, it, um, look, I, here's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that Canada can speak with a strong voice uh, as a voice for peace on the world stage. I hope that we back th that call up uh, with uh, humanitarian aid. Um, and a lot, of, you know, I know that, you know, Lisa and Rob have said, well, we'll, we'll follow from behind and let the others lead. Uh, I do believe, though, that we, we do have a role, uh, you know, as a, as, a, as a democracy, as, some, as a country that has uh, large diasporas from the region. Uh, we have a responsibility to speak up for, for peace uh, and, uh, and, and, and to ensure that uh, international law is, is upheld. Uh, and that eventually we get to that two-state solution uh, that, uh, that, uh, that the world has been waiting uh, uh, well over 60 years uh, to see come about so that people in the region can live in peace. All right, Bob, your final take. You know, the United States has essentially withdrawn from uh, playing a large role in the world since 9-11, particularly in the Middle East. It'll be interesting to see if Joe Biden has decided the time for that is over, that others have filled the role and filled it with malign intent. Uh, and the, the movement of a carrier group to the Eastern Mediterranean suggests that they are prepared to play a larger role. 
Let's hope it doesn't come to that. But one way or another, the United States is going to have to step up if, uh, if Israel is going to be uh, defended as it may have to be if things get out of hand over the next few weeks. What a time for the U.S. not to have a Speaker of the House, hey? <laughs> you know, when you uh, think about everything that, that needs to be dealt with. I don't think it matters. All right, well, we'll find out. <laughs> Hopefully it doesn't. All right, gang, uh, thanks. Uh, we, we took last week off because, you know, uh, obviously events overtook it, but it's good to have you back. My thanks to the Power Panel, Rob Russo, Vanda Cotter, Lisa Raitt, and Brad Levine. MPs are back in Ottawa and weighing in on the war between Israel and Hamas and the protests here at home. Canada fully supports Israel's right to defend itself in accordance with international law. Let me be clear about Hamas. They are not freedom fighters. They are not a resistance. They are terrorists. Innocent lives, be they Palestinian or Israeli, Jewish, Muslim or Christian or otherwise, are all equally precious. Countless of those lives have been lost or put in danger as a direct result of the sadistic attacks of Hamas. The only solution is a political solution. There is no military solution to this conflict. Canada must call for a ceasefire. I want to know what's the interpretation of the Prime Minister of some of the words which have been said in the demonstrations in the streets of Montreal and other cities in Canada. Meanwhile, diplomatic efforts to contain the spread of the Israel-Hamas war are in full force. With U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken returning to Israel today after several days of shuttle diplomacy between Arab states, including Qatar, Jordan, Bahrain, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and Egypt. Meanwhile, Russian leader Vladimir Putin spoke separately to the leaders of Israel, Iran, Syria, Egypt, and Palestinian Authority today. And Canada's Foreign Minister, Melanie Jolie, met with her Jordanian and Israeli counterparts, plus the Minister of Foreign Affairs for the Palestinian Authority. All of this in effort to ensure the war does not spill over anywhere elsewhere in the region, where, over the weekend, Iran's foreign minister warns time is running out for political solutions. So is international pressure doing enough to prevent regional spillover? I'm joined by Arif Lalani, who previously served as Canada's ambassador to Jordan, Iraq, Afghanistan, and the United Arab Emirates, and John Allen, the former Canadian ambassador to Israel. Uh, gentlemen, it's, it's really good to speak with you both again. Thanks so much. Um, Arif, I'd like to start with you. I heard there from Iran's foreign minister warning that if aggression from Israel does not stop, things could escalate. We're seeing something now moving on the wires. Iran's foreign minister says a preemptive actions by the resistance front could be expected in the coming hours. Uh, what's your reaction to that and in the state of play? Uh, I think these are tense moments. Uh, I think uh, there is a real danger of escalation in the West Bank from Palestinians themselves. I think there's a danger with Hezbollah in the north. And I think there's a danger uh, in, in how the operations in Gaza might be conducted in terms of whether this escalates. I actually think, though, that as long as Secretary Blinken uh, and other uh, foreign ministers like Minister Jolie and others who are in the region and diplomacy is taking place. Um, there is some hope here, uh, hopefully for the hostages and for humanitarian assistance. 
John, uh, when you look at what's happened, this fevered uh, attempts at, at diplomacy to, to stop this from spreading uh, from U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken in particular, how, how much sway does this have with Israel and with Hamas and Hezbollah and everyone and Iran and everyone else who's watching this? Well, it's going to be very difficult to dissuade Israel from beginning a ground invasion, I'm afraid. Um, in Israel, you've got uh, pain, uh, you've got humiliation, and you've got fury. And uh, Bibi Netanyahu seems intent on carrying out this ground invasion, and I think it's going to happen, and I think they're going to try and uh, deal with Hamas politically and militarily. Whether or not uh, Hezbollah decides to enter the fray is uh, really the $64,000 question. Uh, there are uh, signs that uh, Iran may be also moving some of its uh, uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard into Syria, which would be another area of, of problem. But uh, Hezbollah has to worry. Uh, in in uh, 2006, uh, Israel ended up bombing uh, southern Beirut, Hezbollah headquarters, and Hezbollah played a, a real, paid a real price for that. And um, Lebanon is in bad shape right now, and it's just not clear they want to attract a, a war there. So that's just um, uh, a warning about whether they want to get involved. But, um, you know, uh, it, it's a possibility. So, uh, Arif, you mentioned um, this inevitable ground, how, how they respond. The, this ground war of Gaza seems inevitable now. It's a question of when. And as grim as the images and the numbers that are coming out of Gaza now, this promises to get worse once that happens. You may reference how the blowback to that or the reaction to the response. What's your big concern there? Well, my, my concern is I, I'm not sure it's inevitable. It certainly looks inevitable, but I do think that there's diplomacy taking place. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, you know, there's a time for states and for governments uh, to rise beyond the pain and anguish of their citizens. And right now is a time for these governments to be very deliberate, to be very methodical in how you want to dismantle and attack and seek retribution for Hamas. I think no one denies them uh, that right. But I think what you're seeing is uh, a number of actors now saying, how are you going to get that best outcome? Um, because if you simply go and flatten and decimate Gaza, just remember that after Hamas, there is still Gaza, and there are still two and a half million people that someone will have to administer and support. So. Uh, I, I think these next few hours are very crucial to see if if states can um, move forward their interests in a in a different way. And if not, you're right. We're going to see a, a lot of violence, um, which is going to buy time, but we know is not going to be a permanent solution. John, uh, Vladimir Putin is, is weighing in on this. Um, clearly, uh, no influence here in the West, you know, a, a pariah for everything that has happened in Ukraine and, and in other places. What role can he possibly play? Does he have any influence with Benjamin Netanyahu? It, it, walk me through Russia's role potentially in this. Well, uh, this is a real blow to Benjamin Netanyahu because he always considered Putin to be an ally 
part of the reason uh, that uh, Israel uh, was very, very slow in supporting Ukraine. Putin also allowed Israel to attack um, the uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guards and rockets and ammunition coming into Syria. And there was also the question of, uh, of Russian Jews hoping to leave Russia, which Putin could turn on or off the tap for. So Bibi must be very disappointed that uh, Putin has now entered the fray on the side of Iran, Hezbollah, and Hamas. And uh, I don't think uh, that's going to play a major role. But of course, Russia is relying on drones and other equipment from Iran, so they want to stay on side with them. And that probably explains why he's coming out now in favor, in addition, of course, uh, being in favor of Iran is being in opposition to the United States, right. uh, which uh, is in his interest. Arif, you mentioned Gaza and, and the more than 2 million people who, who are there, uh, among those at least 300 Canadians, thousands of other foreign nationals. Negotiations happening to allow some of them to leave into Egypt through Rafah to create some sort of a humanitarian corridor, but it doesn't seem to be making a lot of headway. What's the biggest obstacle there, in your view? Well, it seems to me there are two obstacles. Uh, I mean, one is guaranteeing the security of people trying to get to Rafah. Uh, I understand that people who were trying to get there, there were convoys that were attacked. So, so there's a real security problem uh, for those people. And then second, there's, a, there's an issue about opening that border. E Egypt is in a very tough predicament. Mm. Um, you know, if these, if, uh, how many people will come across and will they return? But of more concern to me is I think we're overemphasizing what solution a narrow border uh, entry at Rafah is going to provide. Right. There is no way that, uh, you know, millions of people are going to get through there. So we do have to really look at the humanitarian imperative here versus what is really going to be the outcome? Uh, how is Hamas really going to be destroyed? And, and John, it seems the clock is ticking down on two competing things, right? Food, fuel, medicine, and water inside Gaza, and the start of whatever Israel is going to do next. I mean, is there enough time, in your view, for a, a humanitarian solution here of, of real meaningful consequence? Well, the humanitarian solution is going to come in the south, and the attack is going to come in the north. Um, and uh, and that's what uh, Israel intended by uh, getting people to try and evacuate from the north. Um, I should mention uh, that it, uh, Hamas was uh, making real effort to prevent people from mm -hmm. heading south, and uh, and that only uh, continues to indicate that they're prepared to sacrifice the Palestinian people for their ideology and their cause. Now. You know, um, uh, it, I would hope that at least food and fuel uh, and uh, other material needs for hospitals would be able to come in through the South. I agree with Arif. Egypt doesn't want hundreds of thousands of Palestinians to leave, and they will never come back. And um, so that's not going to happen. Uh, the most that we can hope for is that they... They, they are there uh, until the end of the war and that they're fed and that they're clothed and that they can get some hospital relief uh, and 
um, and, and then we'll see. Uh, Arif is absolutely right. Um, what next? No, everybody agrees that uh, that is the. It, it's a question that nobody knows. Will the UN take over? Will they invite the Palestinian Authority to take over? We're not clear. So, Arif, going back to your point about uh, dealing with Hamas on a permanent basis, the Israeli ambassador was on the show earlier saying they're going into Gaza eventually, and that is their stated goal. The leadership is not all there. Some of it is dispersed and in other countries. Is, can they get rid of Hamas on a permanent basis through a military operation in Gaza? Well, look, history shows us that it's very hard for states uh, to fight militias. Uh, the U.S. and NATO tried it in Afghanistan after 9-11, and after 20 years, basically we lost. Uh, similarly, in, in Iraq. So it is a very difficult thing to um, get rid of Hamas because, uh, you know, all they need are a few fighters uh, and, and they will find them. As you said, their leadership is dispersed. And after the military operation, you know, if you can't find a governing model, if you can't administer the place, mm. uh, then you're really stuck there, uh, which I don't think is in Israel's security interest. Um, so I think they really have to be deliberate now about what is the best way to really attack Hamas. I, I think they need to be punished, but you're going to have to find the most effective way. And as leaders have said, um, you know, states uh, have the right to defend within international law. And Israel in the past has also provided humanitarian assistance in Gaza uh, at the same time as they've had military operations. Uh, John, we have 60 seconds left in the show, so uh, you may not be able to answer this question in that. But what is the best way to, to target Hamas right now, do you think, for Israel to, to deal with them once and for all? Well, first of all, I agree with with Arif. Uh, you can you can target them. You can find the leadership. They're in their tunnels. They're they're under hospitals. You will tr they will try and get them. Um, but there is a group of young people uh, in, in Gaza that will grow up, and if they don't have alternatives, if they don't have employment, if they don't have a, a future, then the ideology is going is to stay. Right. So there, ha there will be a targeted uh, effort, but we've got to look for uh, longer-term solutions going forward. Arif Lalani and John Allen, I always appreciate your time. We've spoken to you quite a bit in the past week, and I suspect we'll be having you back. Uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us again this evening. Thanks for having us. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.